When I was facing amputation, I met this woman called Mel. She started this foundation called Limbs for Life and they support newly, newly found amputees. Met her for a coffee and I said to her, how can I repay some of your kindness? Like, you were amazing to me and you're a really good mentor and all those sorts of things. And she said, oh, mate, you don't have to. And I said, okay, well, I'd like to. And I said, can I ask a personal question? So what is it that you miss most about having two legs? And she said, um, <laughs> you're going to laugh at me. So she said, I miss being able to do burpees. I was like, pardon? Like, they are disgusting. Like, who likes burpees? And I was like, why don't we make a thing of it? I can do burpees. I'd recovered physically well enough at that point. I'll put this thing, you know, GoFundMe page out there and for every dollar pledged towards Lymph Life, I'll complete one burpee. And I thought, you know, I'll raise about $100. So she goes, yeah, you're a lunatic, but do it. Cool, I'd love that. That'd be really awesome. So anyway, I um, put this story out there on the GoFundMe, went live on the internet, and three hours later I checked the page and there's $3,000 in it. I was like, holy shit. That's Kath Cushell. And this is part three of the 2019 Summer Edition of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is my show. This is uh, part three of the summer episodes. A bit of a look back on some of the best ones that you might have uh, looked over, over 2018. And uh, this is with the incredible Kath Koschel. You can find her on Instagram, K-A-T-H-K-O-S-C-H-E-L. She has an incredible story, and I cannot wait to share it with you. Uh, if you're new, welcome to the show. What is this show? Well, this is, this is podcast is a conversation. It's a conversation that you get to be a part of, the conversation that is created to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. I guarantee that, you know, maybe you know the person that I'm talking to, maybe you don't know the person I'm talking to, but I guarantee that in the next hour and a bit, you'll hear something That'll make your day a bit better than yesterday. And shit, this one, you're going to make something that'll make your year a bit better than last year. That is a promise. I guarantee today you're going to hear something that you need to hear. I certainly heard a lot that I need to hear when Kath and I had a chat. Uh, I'm just here to try to help make today a little bit, little bit better than yesterday, which is all I try to do and all I'm sure you try to do as well. So who am I? I'm Osher Ginsberg. I am just a TV hosting podcast making, book writing, husband being, stepfather being, holiday taking, snow chain fitting, calorie goal intake ignoring, roaming data blowouting, jet lag having kind of guy. That's who I am. This is my podcast. I'm glad you're here. If you enjoy it, there's a bunch more. <laughs> 250 more, 60 something. Um, happy exploring. Yes, I'm on holiday. Greetings from a, literally a cabin in the woods. Uh, we're up in the woods. Um, we kind of got snowed in today. Um, and we all sat on the couch, all under a blanket, and we chose to watch the Sandra Bullock film called Bird Box. Not a good idea. <laughs> when you're in a cabin in the woods, oh, it scared the shit out of me. Great movie. Great movie. I won't, uh, I won't spoil it, but it's a, oy, I had anxiety the whole way through. I had to hold Audrey's hand. How was your week? How was your week? A bit tricky for me. I've got to, I've got to be honest with you. Pretty triggery for me. I'm uh, doing my best with it. It's important to remember, I guess the thing for me it's important to remember is that your prefrontal cortex 
the part of your brain that does the rationalizing bits doesn't quite wake up when you do. So you get up first and then it, it goes, I might sleep in for 10. Uh, but that's the rationalizing part of your brain, isn't it? And that's the part that uh, makes sense of all the wild noise that's going on in your head. And so uh, i got to remember that. All that stuff that hits me first thing in the morning. Remember how true it really might be. Um, but I'm just trying to stick to my regular routine, remembering what works. I managed to, you know, in a, in a true Christmas miracle, there was a kettlebell at um, our relative's place um, that we stayed the last couple of days. And uh, it was brilliant to be able to work out there that was great and um, journaling and meditation is also really helping and and I, I do promise my wife I promised you I promised my wife that if the anxiety scores I give myself every day in my journal I sit there and write down little scores let me let me know how I'm going if I if, if they're too high for too long I, I promised Audrey is back on the meds because I've been off meds for like a year and a month now um, there's a couple of few bumps in the road recently um, maybe one rough day a week that I can, that I can handle, um, that I can put down to jet lag and kind of stress over travel and stuff like that. But it's when it settles in every day, like a skin infection, then, you know, I promised Audrey I'm back to the dock and I'll be taking, talking about medication options. That's for sure. But you know, so far it's all right. A bit rough here and there, but it's all right. But I think, you know, it's kind of what I got. That's what I get. That's what I deal with. I try to get better at it, but it's what I'm dealing with. And you know, I know I'm not alone. Not a lot of people deal with it. Um, but yeah, if it gets too bad for too long, I'm back on the meds in a blank. Because life's too short to go through it gritting your teeth, isn't it? it really is. Uh, and I certainly don't want to end up how I ended up last time, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure if you read my book, you know all about. Um, if you've seen the show, you'll know all about it. If uh, speaking of which, the show. Um, uh, quickly, we're all on holidays, me and the team are all on holidays, but um, Rachel, my producer, um, let me know that there's still a couple of tickets left in Brisbane. So if you want to catch the show, the live version of the book, the storytelling show that we've sold out twice in Sydney, sold out twice in Melbourne, and um, there's still a few tickets left to go up in Brisbane. It's on February the 8th at Powerhouse in Brisbane, beautiful venue, big venue. Um, super excited to close the, close the run out there. It's going to be great. Um, just click on uh, oshiginsberg.com. It's the very last show. It's me and Toe Hider and Rachel. We're going to put the show on for you. So I'd absolutely love to, love to see you there. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So let me tell you about my guest today, 
Kath Cashel is an incredibly inspiring human. You can find her on Instagram, K-A-T-H-K-O-S-C-H-E-L. She's the founder of kindnessfactory.com and she has got a story that is going to break your heart three times before it just the clouds part and the warmth of human kindness comes down from the heavens and just thaws your soul back to life again. This conversation is very heavy in parts, deals with suicide, deals with the effects of road trauma. If you need to talk to anyone, please talk to your doctor or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Take responsibility if you're feeling uh, a bit iffy and um, do the right thing. If you can't dig this episode, that's fine. I can, I'll see you next week. I won't mind at all. Kath's story is one. It's a story that describes the incredible power of human resilience. And when it comes to the community that we live in, just the overwhelming kindness that is within us all. We are, through whatever we see in our phones and on TV, we might be led to believe that you know, we're all afraid of each other or there's always someone to be afraid of, a gang of this lot of people or a bunch of that kind of voters or a bunch of people that eat this kind of diet or a bunch of people that like this kind of show or vote for that kind of person. Oh, they're also different. Oh, they mustn't be kind. Well, no. Cast out to prove you all wrong because in this country, we have this overwhelming feeling of joy and compassion and resonance and goodness and Kath is here to prove that to be so. Kath Cashel, at the peak of her power as a world-class athlete, was struck down uh, by a crippling injury. And unlike most human beings who've only had to do it one time, Kath has had to learn how to walk three times in her life. Once as a toddler and twice as an adult. She's also had to face the devastation of losing someone that she loved to suicide just when things were starting to turn a corner for her. Yet, Kath's outlook on the world, her attitude to forgiveness, to kindness, oh, forgiveness, my goodness, to kindness, to, to the trust in the goodness of strangers and the community at large, it's, it's going to make you feel so much better about the world as a whole because Kath's out to show you, she's out to show me, she's out to show everyone else that kindness is what we naturally have in our hearts. And it's something that on a self-centered level actually feels pretty good. You can help Kath get to a million acts of kindness over at kindnessfactory.com and enjoy this conversation with Kath Koshel. Hi, Kath. <laughs> hey, Osh, how you going? I'm good. Good. How do I pronounce your last name? Koshel. Like, Koshel. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know. Koshel with an L. Koshel with an L. How are you today? Good, mate. Really good. Good thanks. to be here in Sydney. Well, thanks for coming around. You've uh, you've travelled a bit to be here today. I have, yeah. So living in Melbourne, moved to Melbourne about six months ago, but I've been to the US and New Zealand up until last week, so firmly back on Australian shores, which is good. <laughs> what are you doing now? Um, I'm a bit of a motivational speaker, so I've been over to the US about three times in the last sort of three months, just sort of developing some business business opportunities for the kindness factory which i'll probably tell you about yeah. throughout this podcast but um so it's been really exciting stuff and i'll probably be and end up spending a lot more time over there which is exciting but yeah, yeah it's an interesting country i lived there for 10 years did you yeah yeah 
It's I'm going to have to pick your brains about it. Whereabouts? I lived in uh, mostly Los Angeles, pretty much all yeah. Los Angeles, um, but all around LA from like kind of a little south of Hollywood in a neighborhood called Highland Park and then I moved to Studio City and then I, the last few years were in Venice Beach. Um, Got ya. I just yeah. spent some time in Marina Del Rey. and uh, Marina Del Rey, was I, like, I was on Washington. Yeah. And like... I was like two streets up from Washington and Marina Doorway was across Washington. Across what Washington, was it? You know, okay. It's like that neighborhood, yeah, like that yeah. pier right there. Yeah. Yeah. And when I rode my, I would stand up paddle in Marina all the time. And cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful part of the world. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to spending more time there actually. Yeah, it's, inter- it's interesting, yeah. interesting space to be in at the moment, America. And because you're getting, yeah. it's more and more from what I gathered and when I was there last, you know, it's, it always was, but it's kind of getting more and more just isolated islands of culture. You know, it was, yeah, right. You know, like particularly in Marina del Rey and Venice Beach and that sort of stuff. Like this real, like you know, conscious capitalism, and you know, we're Google, we're Facebook, we're Snapchat. We're all you know here in yeah here in Los Angeles, here in Venice Beach, right there. Snapchat's HQ is like right there. Yeah. And, you know, we're kind of lefty and, you know, wanting to make the world a better place. And then you go, shit, you know, 50 kilometers inland. Well, no, you got 50 kilometers south and it's like, fuck all the immigrants. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, take my guns from my cold dead hands. And it's like so close. Yeah, wow. I didn't go down south. but All right, um, yeah, Orange County is an interesting place. Is it? Yeah. I'm going to have to explore a little bit. I don't (laughs) know if it's safe to do so now. Yeah, some kindness. Some kindness required in, uh, in, in, in the OC. I can promise you, I can promise you that, Kat. Okay. Uh, did you grow up in, in Melbourne? Is that where you? No, grew up? no. I grew up in Sydney, so I'm from a really small suburb called Mortdale, which is sort of in between, say, Cronulla and the city CBD. So about 30k out of the city. Yeah. Um, but also spent a lot of time in the bush in a really small town called Finley. Um, so it's right on the Victorian New South Wales border. So it's actually closer to Melbourne than it is Sydney but still in New South Wales and it's about a town with a population of about 800 people so uh, my grandparents uh, still live there Um, and mum and dad sort of grew up um, in and around that area as well so I spent a bit of time there but but mainly grew up in in Sydney Mm. Mortdale so all I know about Finley I learned from spider bait Yes, yep. Uh, the Finley Lake, there's a song about the, Finley Lake. The unfinished Spanish galleon of Finley so it's Lake. It's known for two things. Either if you're a muso or in that world, it's Spider Bay. And if you're an athlete, it's like the Shane Crawford AFL country. So oh, right. that's the response you normally get. You either don't know because it's not even on the map, or you get Spider Bay or Sean, Sean, Shane Crawford, I think it yeah. is, AFL player. But All I know is Cram used to, I did some work with Cram, the drummer from Spider Bay, for a while there. And he used to tell me about this. Uh, yeah, they built this Spanish galleon. In the lake. Yeah. And it never got finished. And then it got burnt, I think. Something like Someone that. Someone scorched it and they made a song about it, the Finley Lake. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Have to get are they still around, Spot? Uh I yes, I don't know, yes and no. I yep. mean they're all they're all quite a bit older than me by now. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know, I think, you know, you get to a point of if you're a if you're a nineties three piece band that plays a particular kind of music that, you know, you've kind of I don't know. You either <laughs> You either start putting out records that are made with sequences and samplers or you just go on nostalgia tours. Yeah. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I it's, Google them after this. I it's a trick. Yeah. It's a, it I'm going to have to get Cram on the show. That's what, that's what I'll do. Beautiful. I'll get Cram on the show, Cram the drummer, and um, 
I'm going to get him on. He's actually, he's, I'm writing a book at the moment, Kath, and he's, uh, he featured, this is the book right here. Oh, really? By the way, this massive pile of pages right yeah. here with a pencil on it. Nice. This is the book and I'm editing it. Brilliant. Right, right now we're at the final. I've got like four days left to hand it in. Got, yeah. I've got a book due in, in June and I haven't, sorry, in July and I haven't even started yet. So right. I'll have to get some tips well, off you. Let me tell you, uh, Ben Law sat right there. Yeah. And Ben Law told me this. Yeah. Uh, write with the door closed and edit with the door open. So write whatever you have to write yep. about friends, family, work, just just write it. Write it as greedy. Don't worry about, you know, yep. worrying anybody. Yeah. Okay, just you've got to write it because there's things in writing that stuff. The stuff you write after you write the really intense stuff that you think might worry somebody, yep. that can actually be super solid gold. And all you do then when you edit is just pull the first part out and the right. last part stays. But you don't get to that part if you don't open those doors and... Cool. You know, go down those paths. Yeah. And the other thing he told me was, and it's, it breaks down really simply. Uh, if you want to write a book, and I'm sure you pitched when you when you pitched the book, you would have had like a chapter heading, and you know, here's what you want to do. So then you simply write, okay, here's you know, chapter one to fifteen. Yeah. Oh, let's go one to ten, so we can make the make the things right. So here's chapters one to ten. Right. Here's five things that I want to say in each chapter. Bang, 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 bang. Okay, so that's fifty things. So here's the five ways. That I'm going to get. That's really cool. Uh, from that, I, the points that I want to make between those five things, and here's how I'm going to get between each one. Here's how I'm going to thread the through line between each one. So then you've got just a list of 250 lines, and all you do is you just fill in the gaps. Yeah, add. Yeah, yeah. And if you put if you put very cool 500 words between each of those, that's 100,000 words. Yeah, wow. Bob's okay. running 120,000 words. Bob's running living lover. You got a book. <laughs> all right. It's that is really that easy. that easy. Yeah, that's yeah. how it, that's you know that's just what Ben Law taught me. It's, it's, it's almost like when someone says, "Do you want to write a book?" and you say, "Okay," and then you go, well, "Where do you even start?" So yeah, that's a. But it's like anything. It's it's like yeah. your sporting career. It's like, yeah, do you yeah. want to just become a first class cricketer? No, you, there's, there's you know I know that all I have to do is 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 one training session at a time, one rep at a time, one run at a time, one score at a time, one win at a time, one loss at a time, and then over years it builds up, and it's the same same. Like yeah. it's like any job that I've ever had. I'll sit out here in the in the kitchen and say to Audrey, I'm going to go write for a while. I had a little system going on. I'd, I'd have a cup of coffee. I put on some classical music. I'd work for 25 minutes on, five minutes off. And I found that in about three hours, I could probably smash out maybe 1,500, 2,000 words. Really? But after that, my brain has to be porridge. Got, yeah. Be worth keeping going. So you'd stop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. But making it a process. Like this yeah. is a gig. Yeah. You know, you've got an advance. They're paying you. It's a yeah. job. Yeah. You know, so... This is me doing my get job doing it, yeah. for three cool. hours and you just get it done. Good just do stuff. it every day. Just consistently do it it's every good... day and trust your editors. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. But that's a good way to, to put it. I'm here to help. Sorry, that was me talking a lot. <laughs> uh, but so uh, I'm, I'm so grateful you're here because the, what you're doing is so in alignment with, you know, I guess ways that I've found to bring happiness to yourself, all right? I've had on this show an extraordinary Japanese guy by the name of Ichi Hanshimis who's just like his whole thing is like the only true path to happiness is being kind to others. That's agree. really, that's all it is. Yeah, fully agree. Um, you have, you came to that discovery in a very difficult way. <laughs> I did, yeah. Uh, is it okay if we talk about 
Yeah, I'd if, love to. If yeah. we talk about that, hundred percent. Okay, yeah. so let, let's paint the picture a little bit about your your athletic career. When did you first start going? Oh, I'm a bit better at this than everybody else. Uh, I started. I was actually a ballet dancer, so I'm I'm one of four kids, and I've got three older brothers. So mum um, and dad were elated when I was born because I was the only girl, and they thought this will be the you know the princess and all those sorts of things. But um, at the age of four, I started ballet, and I just knew it wasn't for me. Even at that early stage, I'd find any excuse not to go. And then at eight, I, I chucked in the tutu and then the leotard for for the cricket spikes and whites. So um, dad was pumped um, and it just happened, you know, two years later that I just decided that I really loved the game and um, probably got a little bit better than what my brothers were and all those sorts of things. How old were you when you got better than your brothers at cricket? About 10. Yeah. Oh, were they spewing? They were because they'd get picked on actually. So that I'd get picked before they would and all those sorts of things and they'd get teased and I, I didn't even bat an eyelid or recognise that what they must have been gone through that experience what, like, like primary school lunchtime cricket yeah. when they're picking teams yep so my two the two closest in age to me would be left you know left standing before uh, sorry after I was picked and they would be like well what's going on here hang on my little sister's got the go before me and and um, what, what was your forte then uh, were you bowling or batsman batter keeper so I was batter. A, sorry a, I've put the the the, the gender okay. specific name on no, it no 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 I think it's yeah batter um batter and a keeper I was early days so um loved it and just loved to play hey so just grew up playing amongst the boys um got school of hard knocks sort of upbringing in towards cricket um and then just kept grinding my way through it um, and then sort of progressed through the state systems as a kid in the female systems and then it wasn't till about um, 18 when I was at uni so left school went to uni what did you study sport and exercise science so human movement degree in that which was good so the pathway was fairly clear for you fairly early like I'd love this I don't want to do anything else I think it's sort of like you know you finish school and then you go well what's next and someone you know a career advisor sort of says well you know you're good at sport you like that you're interested in it the fitness side of things is your, your, your sort of forte you know your stuff why don't you study that and I thought okay well that's just the progressive step in life go to uni get a degree and then figure the rest out so while I was doing that I actually trained and kept my cricket up while working simultaneously and all those sorts of things so a really chaos period in my life fast tracked my degree so that I could go and uh, get my first professional contract in England so the UK so I played two years for Middlesex as the the Aussie player how old were you uh, 19 when I first went, which how, was cool. How do you even, how they even <laughs> find you? Um, I think it was just performances on the field and um, the Australian system was a bit stronger at that point. So it was sort of like, okay, well, we want an, an, an Australian to come over and help us sort of progress our, our ranks. So I went and played for two years in Middlesex, so home of cricket, Lords, all those sorts of things. So learnt my trade really well over there, developed a front foot drive for any of the cricket fans and come back with a, a much stronger technique and uh -huh. then the inevitable happened and I was sort of picked for New South Wales immediately after returning back from there so that was the childhood dream so it was you know all I ever cared about was cricket I ate slept breathed cricket I was very one-dimensional back then I just didn't I really didn't have an open mind about the whole wide world that was out there it was all about cricket so it was very I was very absorbed I suppose within the game which was good because it got me to where I'd always dreamt of of playing but yeah meant that, you know, as life progressed and things sort of happened that um, it was actually a little bit more challenging because I'd never really had open experiences of the world outside of cricket. But so. what did you get when you were like in the moment, in the game, when things were like really flowing for you and you just like hit an incredible drive and you got a boundary? Like what did, what did you get at those moments that was so like I have to do this all the time? 
Um, it's just that rush. It's, a, it's, it's hard to explain. As an athlete, I sort of feel like we, we're just so driven in a sense that um, athletes just have this thing, and you probably know, you've been speaking to a lot of various different people and stuff, there's just this innate ability to perform well, I suppose. And it's only now that I'm not an athlete that I realised how much I thrived on that kind of stuff. Like it meant everything to me to be a cricketer. I dreamt, you know, I didn't even know there was a female team when I was eight and starting on that journey. So Ricky Ponting and Adam Gilchrist and all these sorts of people were my idols and I just didn't do anything but cricket. So for me to be able to play and get paid to do that professionally it was just the pinnacle of life. I just thought I'd made it and... For me, life couldn't get better at that point when I was out in the middle playing for, you know, New South Wales and Australia and all those sorts of things. So it was just amazing. Like it was, yeah, that euphoric feeling all the time, which was awesome. Let, let me just like just rewind just a bit of a, a moment. There must have been some point where you folks were like, man, we've got to expose this kid to possibility. Do you remember the first time you went to the SCG? I do actually. I got picked for the under-14s emerging blues side. Um, and my dad was, a, my old man was a cop for 40 years. So he had these weird shift hours and mum isn't a very confident driver. Like she'll drive around, you know, Mortdale and where we're from, but never in the city. And so we had this six o'clock start on a Friday night, um, at the SCG. Never been there before. Never been there. Before. I'd been there to watch a cricket game. Yeah. So yeah. do you remember going to the game I the do. first time? It was, a, it was a one day international. It was the <sighs> third. Yeah, it was sick. Um, it was the, the third final. I think it would have been in like 99 or something like that. Um, so they went to the, the, the clincher. So they'd played a final each. It was against South Africa. Um, Australia had won one and South Africa had won one. So day it night? Was day night. SCG and, yeah, I thought it was the Ducks Nights. Hey, I got the, the day off because it was a day-nighter. It was a school day the next day. I was in February and school had just gone back and got the day off school the next day because I was so tired from, you know, the, the feeling of being there and you finish at midnight. Mum, Dad and my, my – brother closest to me in age grant so it was it was intense and there's, there's and nothing awesome. well, do you remember the moment that you first like walk through that tunnel and you just sort of see that green no i don't really actually recall that more i remember actually the banter that was going on in the stands so as i said ricky ponting was my idol he actually broke his leg that night sliding into the fence i didn't have the rope back in those days um and i'll never forget being up close to him so we're sort of in the stands and i'd gone down you know where the kids hang over and get the autographs and all that kind of stuff and so i'd gone down to sort of try my luck there he was on the boundary and i saw him actually break his leg as he slid oh. into the fence and it sort of broke my heart a little bit because i was like oh it's my favorite player and i idolized him and um it yeah, incredible feeling and I thought I think it was probably at that point that I went hang on is how could a girl do this? How could a girl become involved in cricket to the to that level? And then sort of maybe did a bit of research. Uh, the internet wasn't really big back then either. So I tried to research um, in and around sort of academies and things as to if there was a, a female cricket team because there wasn't much exposure back then and found out that there was and then I thought, well, that's me. That's what I'm putting my mind to and no one's going to really stop me. So uh, off I went and I just kept grinding away. We? I would have been 12 at that point. 12. Yeah. Man, that's extraordinary, isn't it? The amount of people, the, honestly, the amount of people I've held on this show that just knew. Yeah. They just knew. They're like, that's it. That's yeah. what it's going to be. It's interesting because, I mean, I was obviously a, a skilled enough player to be there or thereabouts, but a lot of coaches told me along the way that um, I probably wouldn't ever make it and I just didn't believe them. I just thought, well, if I want this bad enough, I'll make it happen. So if it was an area like fitness that I had to work on to get that leg up, then that's what I'd do. So I used to absolutely flog myself in a gym and um, it just meant everything to me to get to that level. So um, not as naturally gifted as, say, like an Elise Perry or an Elisa Healy or someone like that, stardom, but um, had the ability to grind my way through 
a lot of different circumstances to actually make it to that level. So it was just epic to get there. I think it meant that because I'd worked so hard for it, it meant a lot more to me mm. and I didn't take it for granted as well, which was awesome. Did you find the difference between you and other players you were competing to get spots on the team were, was that you would put the extra hours in at the gym? Yeah, see, I'm a, um, not actually a natural competitor, like competitor either. So a lot of people will, you know, go, oh, I've got to beat that player to get ahead of her or him or whatever it may be. And for me, it wasn't that. It was more a battle against myself. So if you can, you know, if your yo-yo score was or your 2K time trial was eight minutes one week, then the next minute it had to be 750 and that's how I sort of I suppose just adapted to that lifestyle so just sort of kept putting things like that in place and little markers in place and it was a fight or a battle more against myself and my own circumstances than anyone else's so so break like we were talking about the book before breaking it down into smaller and smaller yeah for want of a better word KPIs for smaller and smaller indicators of like if I can hit this by then yeah then if I look at the curve on a chart I'll be there by then. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It was more about worry about yourself and what's going on in your backyard than anyone else. So don't worry about their results. You just do the work, get your results a bit better and naturally things will happen. And that was a pretty good system for me. It actually worked really well because I got to where I got to and yeah. Worry about things in your backyard. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's such a brilliant kind of, that's a lovely thing that you're right. Because what you're essentially doing is like, I can't control other people. Nah. I nah. can't control circumstances. All I can control is how hard I work. Yep. Which is all I did. Um, and the, I mean, a lot of people go, what's your secret to success? And I said, worry about yourself. Figure that out and the results will follow. And if you're good enough and those results are good enough, then, you know, you'll overcome what you need to or overcome the other people that aren't working as hard. And I suppose it was just, yeah, that's what I had in me. I had the grind and the ability to grind away and I suppose the resilience to get there. So it was good. It meant a lot more when I got there. So it was yeah. Yeah, really, really good. What's life like on the Australian women's cricket team? Um, well, I wasn't actually there for, t for too long, so I can't really tell you. I mean, I, it was, it's a very privileged position to be and you get to travel the world doing the thing that you love um, and seeing parts of the world that you never thought you really would. Because I suppose the cricketing nations around there, you've got your top four, which is you know Australia, um, New Zealand, England, South Africa, India. And then you've got your other countries like your Pakistan's, uh, Sri Lanka, all those sorts of countries. So you sort of realise that you're in a really privileged position when you get to see the landscapes of other countries and how tough they might be doing it and all those sorts of things. So um, that's when I probably started seeing more about the world and realising that there was a bit more in the world um, that the world had to offer, I suppose. So, um, that, But it didn't really click over that, you know, I could contribute to the world and making the world a better place at that point. So um, it was probably my first eye-opening experience being overseas and seeing some of the poorer nations and the third world countries and all those sorts of things. But um, it's just a very privileged... I mean, it's a yeah, it's like living in a dream in a sense. You get to go and do the thing that you love. I mean, you miss home naturally, but um, I suppose I wasn't exposed to it for too long because injury sort of struck me in a pretty bad way. So um, while... While I was there, it was phenomenal and incredible and, um, you know, there's a very good team atmosphere and there are really good people around you always within the team plus the support staff and all the people that you're travelling with. Um, but then also, yeah, just the experience is just something that I'll probably never forget as well. But, yeah, it's an intense and, and crazy tour, yeah, whenever you go away with the team. So you, you talked about injury. What happened? So about I, I debuted in January 2011 and um, I'd had this ongoing issue where I, you know, just noticed that I was sort of losing feeling in one of my legs or my, my left foot. Um, so I sort of scanned up and it was a bit of a degenerative disc issue. 
in your um, back. In, yeah, in one of the vertebrae in my back. Um, so L5, S1, a bit lower spine. And then it all just sort of come crashing down. So we'd scanned up and we knew it was safe to play. I was sort of using cortisone injections to keep playing and all those sorts of things. And then one day it just went bang and the disc slipped out really quickly. Um, the two vertebrae cracked onto each other and part of the the, the L the S1 vertebrae cracked off and embedded itself into my spinal cord, which left me paralysed for it was supposed to be forever. Um, and then, yeah, I just sort of, I suppose, went through a process of sort of six surgeries after that point, told I'd never walk again. Um, wait, 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 wait. So hang on. <laughs> yeah. So you were on the field when this happened? Yeah, so I'm sort of fielding in cover. Um, for people who so, don't play cricket, uh, so can you help explain yeah, that, Yeah, so that's in front of the batter, um, probably one of the most specific spots in cricket. So in between the wicketkeeper and the bowler, so halfway in between. and Quick hands. Yeah, quick hands. Uh, I don't know why I was there. I wasn't the best fielder in the team or anything like that. So um, anyway, fielding in cover and then I just twisted and the two vertebrae just went snap basically. And you couldn't feel your feet? Yeah, well, I just sort of – I remember specifically taking a breath in and being in an immense amount of pain hitting the deck and then it was all sort of over. So it was sort of rushed off to the hospital, um, you know, sort of screaming. I sort of remember sort of screaming and going, I, I can't feel my legs, um, but don't really remember much in and around that. Um, so getting to the hospital and then scanning up and it was just sort of surgery after surgery after surgery and they're like, it's just not going to happen, Kathy. Not, we're not going to fix this. And can, can I ask? Yeah. How do they... How do they tell you? I mean, we're watching. I asked this because we're ask, we're watching this show at the moment. Uh, Audrey and Georgia love this show. It's called Real Detectives, and, and it's, <laughs> um, the the story is basically like uh, I'll get I'll get to why I'm asking this. Um, the story is basically like taking a detective from a case from like 20, 30 years ago. So they're often in their fifties or sixties. It's American, yeah. And they give a really you know emotive first person narrative account of like a particularly you know emotionally difficult you know, like maybe they were dealing with a case of a, a murdered girl who was the same age as their daughter and stuff like that and yeah, then they right. recreate it. But they always talk about having to go and do the death knock, always talk about having to go and tell the family. So what's it like? Who tells you Yeah, this I mean, has happened, you're never going to walk again? Uh, so it was after the first surgery. So the first couple of surgeries, they went through the back um, to try and access the spine that way and to resolve the problem. Um, and then it was the doctor who basically said, we, you know, we're hopeful at this point still, but we don't think that you're ever going to walk again. Um, and it was sort of left at me at that point. And it was a bit, bit of a cold conversation. I suppose you have to remain detached as a professional. So it was more about my family being around me at that point and then just us sort of saying, well, that's okay if that's the end result. Um, however, we're not going to give up without a fight. So um, I remember talking to uh, the Australian team doctor now, Dr. John Orchard, really well-regarded doctor within a sports physician, um, and he sort of said, Kath, I think the best chance for you to recover or to get any chance at walking again is to have this pretty groundbreaking surgery called a total disc replacement. And I said, okay, if you, you know, I'd obviously trusted him and he'd been around my injury for the longest amount of time. And sort of said to him, let's give it a shot then. So um, got transported to the Gold Coast where they do that. So it's a really talented surgeon called um, Matthew Scott Young who does these surgeries. Um, so people fly in from around the world just to get like, – a lot of NRL players get their necks done by him because it gives you that mobility. Um, so went up and did that. And with that one, that was my sixth surgery. So it was sort of like, the, you know, I was sort of losing a little bit of hope at that point going, okay, five surgeries have been unsuccessful here. So are you, are you like Googling up – 
how do I put ramps in my house at this point? Like, is it all that kind of not, stuff? Not yet. We'll, well, I'll get to that. You're in a chair? Yeah, it's got a wheelchair? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of hospital sort of stuff. So I had this condition, yeah, prior to that called foot drop and that was sort of, you know, I sort of had the inklings of those sorts of things at that point. So, yeah, go to the Gold Coast. Um, what they do with this surgery is they cut through the stomach rather than the back. There's a lot, of, lot less scar tissue because it's quite a major surgery um, and they had to cut a fair amount of, you know, body open. They cut through the stomach and they basically shift the vital organs aside and they access the spine that way. And it's actually not as safe but less invasive in terms of cutting through muscle mm. in your back. So they've done that. Um, they spaced the vertebra apart. Um, so four, I grew four centimetres in this surgery so it sort of collapsed that much. Taller, so, four centimetres. Yeah, so I grew taller. BMI improved like, amazingly <laughs> in a really, really big way. <laughs> so I was stoked about that being like, you know, that athlete and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, so that happened. Um, they basically lined the vertebrae with uh, titanium. And it's sort of like a ball and socket if you've got a shoulder rico or something like that. Uh, they, you know, one's got a bit of a divot and one's got a bit of a ball in it. And it just gives you all this mobility. Um, and it was going to give me the best chance at being able to walk again. So did that and sort of had the recovery. So six weeks, you know, the first two weeks of your life flat on your back, still sort of wondering, got all that head noise going, am I going to walk again? Is this going to be successful? All that kind of stuff. And then you start, you know, the, the recovery process. How do you, you know. how do you deal? You talk head noise. How do you deal with that kind of head noise? Because if yeah. it was me, it would just be non-stop. It would be like having five radios going on all the time and every time I tried to turn one down, the other one would turn up. It would be impossible for me to shut that off. How did you do that? Back then I actually – so in terms of mental health and all that kind of stuff, like my I suffered more adversity after this point, which is then when I really started to struggle with a lot of head noise. Um, but back then it was more – I feel like I just was this really naive kid who – I was only 24, 23 what? when it happened, yeah. So I feel like I was just this naive kid that went well, – you tell me one thing, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you. Not not out of spite or, you know, to be aggressive, but more so um, I've got this. Like, I, don't worry about it, I've got it. So I think it was more you, you're heavily drugged, so you've got morphine going through your system, like low heart rate, all that kind of stuff. So you're quite sedated um, for the first week and the second week you then just start, on, you know, you get your strength back a little bit and that's when you start going, well, I wonder when I'm going to get up and when they're going to try and let me walk or try and see if I can walk. So... Um, probably the second week in, it was just sort of like more anticipation for me. I was like, no, I'll walk like I've got this. Um, so I suppose it was just, you know, that naivety as a kid back then that I didn't have as much head noise, but you'd certainly do, yeah, it sort of ticks over and you do wonder. Um, but the last sort of, you know, two weeks after the surgery, I did get up and I took my first step with a physio, which was intense and insane and incredible and everything all rolled into one and that's when I probably knew that like it would be okay everything would be okay um so sort of yeah then spent the next four weeks in the Gold Coast before it was sort of safe enough to, for me to fly rehabbing home. yeah rehabbing in a in a clinic and all those sorts of things and, and you're like I'm a professional athlete I'm not going to be the one that the physio God, patient that just goes yeah sure I did my exercises and the exercise band still sitting in the glove box no you're no. like you were at it all day I'm guessing I was yeah. yeah so they couldn't sort of I had this um I'll get to that rule a bit later, but the, what sort of got me through a lot of my rehab situations was oh, it definitely helped that I was an athlete and I had that drive in me. But for me, it was, you know, a lot of people sort of say, um, you know, you're never going to walk again. I, for me, in my head, I was still playing cricket again. Like I was going to get back on the park and I'd still be an athlete, professional athlete. So I suppose that was really helpful. Very naive and, and not even close to the mark because I probably never would have played cricket again. Um, 
even before this other drama happened in my life. But um, I think for me that was probably a good thing that I had that still in me that, no, no, I've got this, I'll get back on the park one day and this is just the natural progression again like we sort of spoke about before. I'll just tick these boxes and that will lead me to getting back on the park again, which is really, really helpful. And, yeah, I suppose I'll I'll progress the story. So um, got home Four weeks after the two weeks, so six weeks post-surgery, continued rehab here. Um, everything's gone really, really well. Got back around the cricket girls in a sense that just, you know, sort of immersed myself into the environment. You want a cane? You want a frame? Uh, frame plus sticks. So I had those two, you know, the Canadian crutches. Oh, yeah. Those sorts of things. So I was getting around on on them um, and recovery's gone, gone really, really well. And then one morning I just sort of woke up. Um, thankfully, I'd sort of, I was living out of home, but because I was going through a fair bit, I was living with my parents again. And um, I woke up one morning and I just sort of looked down at my leg and it was just blue. So um, I don't know how it looked. It was like a sky blue sort of colour, bruisey colour. And it was really heavy and all those sorts of things. I'm thinking, what's going on here? So um, went to went to rehab basically. I was supposed to go to rehab that morning. So I'd go to rehab from 5 till 7 every morning, do that, and then try and do some work or gym or whatever it was else that I thought I had to do to get back on the park. So I ring my doctor on the way in. So thankfully I had an automatic car, so I dragged my leg out into the car. He said, Kath, bypass rehab, meet me straight at the hospital, I'll meet you there. This is a five o'clock, I called my doctor. I can't even believe that I did that. And he picked up. And he picked up. At five in the morning. At five in the morning. He's a very good man. Um, This is Dr. Scott Young. No, this is Dr. Orchard, John Orchard. Dr. Orchard. Yeah, so he's a very good man. He's actually the Australian team doctor, men's doctor now, so he's a Uh ripper of a guy. So anyway, I went to the to the hospital. I remember sort of sitting there thinking, you know, this is just, you know, another thing that, that's happened, but wasn't really concerned. And, you know, you go into those hospital rooms, consult rooms, and there's glass all around them. So I'm sort of sat there on this bed and they've, you know, done all these sorts of tests in my leg, they're sticking pins in it and measuring all these readings and all these sorts of things. And I thought, okay, this is a bit unusual. And I just remember all these doctors sort of rushing together and they're all sort of looking in at me in this glass room. And I thought, this isn't normal. And only one doctor come in and it was my doctor. And he just literally just said to me, I'll never forget. He said, Kath, that's not great. And I said, okay, what does that mean? And he said, um, we're going to have to amputate your leg. And I just went, pardon? And he said, we're going to have to amputate your leg. And I said, well, what do you mean? Like that, that's never been a thing. Like that's never been considered a thing for me and for this situation. I broke my back, yes, but what? Like you're going to cut my leg. And so he said, we're not sure what's going on. The blood's not flowing into your leg. That's why it's blue. That's why you can't use it. That's why you can't feel it. And I said, okay. Um, so I just, I remember calling my brother. He's one of my best mates in the world, Grant, and he's just beautiful. And I uh, sort of said to him, this is what they're telling me. And he said, okay. So he came rushing into my aid. And then I said to the doctors, I said, he said, Kath, surely not. Like, this can't happen. I said, yeah. I said, well, we need to come up with a plan. I said, you can't just cut my leg off. Like, what do you mean? And they said, well, it's life-threatening. So part of my internal organs started shutting down as well. So I didn't really know if I could use my bladder or bowel, all this sort of stuff. That had come back really quickly, so I wasn't as concerned about that. But they said, Kath, this is life-threatening. I said, well, okay. Um, I said, you've got to give me a deadline or something. You've got to give me some sort of chance to keep it. Just give me something. Uh, And I think it was just to, you know, entertain my thinking or to give me some sort of... Uh, I don't know, something back or hope or something. Um, and they said, okay, well, we think it's a blood flow issue. Um, blood's not flowing into your leg. We'll give you two weeks basically to get the blood pressure up. And I said, that's great, but how do you do that? 
without machines and all this sort of stuff. And they, they said, well, we think exercise will help. Get it moving any way you can because I couldn't actually move it. It was like, okay, strap it into a machine, spin the bike with the other leg and get it moving that way. I thought exercise, great. I'm an athlete. I can do that. Give me a shot. So cool. That's That was the order of the I day. I just still can't believe you're getting told you're going to lose your leg before breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, before 7 o'clock, yeah. So, Holy shit. Yeah. So exercise it was. So um, my day from that point on, I'd sort of quit my job and all that kind of stuff to focus on myself. And, and the Oh, look, it's only your leg. <laughs> only my leg. Fair enough to focus on yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So um, it would look like this. So 5 till 7 would be rehab with a physician and all those sorts of things and then I'd go home for brekkie and I'd go to the local gym till lunch, go home for lunch, go back to the gym have dinner and then because of the anxiety of everything that was going on, I couldn't really sleep. So because I was an athlete at the SCG at Cricket New South Wales, I had a 24-hour access pass and there's a, a gym in there uh, and I'd go there at 1, 2, 3, 4 a.m. just because I was like, well, they're telling me to exercise, that's what I'll do. So it was in, incredible. It was probably the first time I noticed human kindness at that point, the security guard. So there's a 24-hour security guard there and he would notice the lights on in the indoor centre gym sort of come in his name was Frankie and he'd come in and he'd sort of say oh, what are you doing here and I'd say oh I sort of explained the situation and he, he you know heart went out his heart sort of sunk deep and he said well what can I do to help rather than go and get out you're not supposed to be here so he'd strap my leg into a machine leave me there for 45 minutes come back check on me make sure I was all right unstrap it all those sorts of things so I just had all these people who were sort of gunning for me um, sort of, I suppose that's the first time I realised that people were on my side, but time really wasn't. Um, so it gets to the day before I was due to be amputated. So it was, I was supposed to be, I was booked in for 10 a.m. on a Monday, um, and it was the Sunday. And my family, and all of their wisdom, go, okay, well, you know, the inevitable is happening. Really sad situation. So, um, being the true Aussies that they are, they said, we'll hold a barbecue with your nearest and dearest, and they decided to call it the cat's last day with two legs barbecue um and it was just sort of the, my closest family and friends that sort of gathered together to go okay we've got your back and you've got this so that was yeah a real big reality for me to sort of happen and then um staying at mum and dad's again that night and I go to bed the night before it's a really strange feeling knowing the next day you're gonna have your leg cut off um, anyway, dad finds me a few hours later unconscious in the middle of the night I'd basically gotten up felt unwell hit the deck um, so he found he heard the noise of me hitting the deck immediately grabbed me picked me up put me in the car rushed me to hospital um, they did a full body scan um, and realized that uh, the where they'd made the incision in my stomach there'd been a really tiny internal bleed on one of the femoral art arteries because of that and the nerve damage in my leg the blood hadn't been flowing into my leg um, so anyway once that was found and fixed um, bleeds fixed, the leg saves basically. But yeah, so literally within hours of having his leg sort of cut off, and then yeah, next thing you know, it's it's we're back in the game. It's still not safe. So it was like, uh, yeah, you've kept it for the time being, but you need to keep this leg in good health. You need to keep doing all the right things. So come out of surgery, and then basically they said, next steps rehab, mate. Six to twelve months. You first of all, you got to remain safe enough to keep it and healthy enough to keep it and then you can try and start the process of learning how to walk again so that's what I did I signed up for six to 12 months however long it would take for me to get myself back in into good health um, so really strange place rehab um, I went to Royal Ride Rehabilitation Center so I mean it's in Sydney kind of like northwest yeah yep, northwest so yeah. yep out that way so um, 
so yeah, really strange place. So it's like three categories, you know, the over 65, 75s, 85s. I'm there at 24 going, what, what, what category do I fit in? Yeah. So someone in all their wisdom puts me in the over 85s and I was just like, okay, here we go. Um, what's going on here? So just a confronting and a place like no no other, I suppose. So you've got stroke victims, spinal cord injury, brain injury, all those sorts of things. So really unknown environment for me to be in. But then again, sort of, you know, using perspective and all those sorts of things just um, – took me about a week to get into the groove of it. It was just sort of, you know, poor me, why me, all that kind of stuff in the first week and then I can't be here and then it was just like, you know what, the only person I'm hurting at the moment by having that attitude is myself. So if I want to get out here quicker, i just got to succumb to doing all the things that they're telling me. Um, so anyway, it was about two weeks into my stay that um, my life actually changed for the good in a really good way. So um, met and fell in love with um, who was my partner, Jim. He was a rugby league player who'd injured his spine as well. So he was 25, I was 24. In rehab together. In rehab. Oh, you rehab buddies. Rehab buddies. So, yeah, the first week it was I'll show you the ropes because we're the same age and I think you're quite cute and all those sorts of things. And then um, just progressed, I don't know, naturally and really beautifully into this fully blown relationship. So we're like, you know, two little young punks, athletes, so really similar mindsets and all those sorts of things in a really unknown environment. But then we just made it our own so I just started making friends with all the elderly and it sort of become a second home for me in a sense where it was really endearing uh one of my best mates in rehab was was Daisy she was uh an 85 year old sort of stroke victim so her name wasn't actually Daisy it was was Iris she I called her Daisy because she called me Alice because she had dementia and she thought I was a granddaughter and all these sorts of things so I just started making friends with with all these sorts of people in 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 rehab but none more so than than Jim so Really special guy who I just grew to love in a really quickly and organic way, I suppose. So it's really, really nice. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How did you both kind of get better around the same time? Yeah, so our recoveries are sort of spurred on by each other, I suppose. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you've got a like-minded person there. Both are really competitive within within each other, so only towards ourselves. Um, but, you know, I had this rule in rehab, it was called by three, it's really technical, and it just meant that if I was, you know, told to do something three times, I'd do it, in, sorry, five times, I'd do it 15, so I just multiplied everything by by three and it drove the doctors mad but um, they, they always stayed back with me to help me to make sure that I got that, you know, that rule done. So I Why did you just, do that? Um, more so because I sort of felt, well, you know, if you're prescribing me to walk five steps, then I think I've got more in me than that um, and I can go above and beyond and I want to get, I, I want to do this better. Um, so it's just a rule that I just literally made up myself and I thought, well, yep, I can do that. And then the doctors, I think, just saw the little the ticker in me and just went, okay, well, if she's 
willing to stay with us, then we're going to go the extra mile with her. So, um, and then Jim sort of adapted that and then other patients. So it was just, we built this really beautiful culture in the rehab center for the, you know, the time that we were there. So recovery sort of spurred on by each other and actually fast tracked us. Um, so I was a bit of a way ahead of Jim. So I'd been injured earlier and had probably different prognosis to what he did. Um, so I'd been basically about six months after I'd been admitted, I was released to sort of outpatient care. So it's where you'd go in three days a week rather than sort of being housed there. Um, he still had a little bit of a way to go. So I'd sort of come visit him still and all those sorts of things. So uh, really intense time of our lives but um, you know we had days out of rehab were Sunday so it's our favorite day of the week you know we'd literally do nothing but go and get really good bean so coffee um, and you know it sounds like nothing at all but it was sort of like the best time of our life like you know being surrounded by four white walls the entire week and then you get out to a, a cafe and amongst people and having coffee and it just meant the world to us to do that so um, it was sort of like paradise I suppose going yeah to a coffee shop when it sounds really silly and and yeah, probably a bit lame, but it's not silly at all. Yeah, because yeah. no, it's not silly at all. Because you, you're being you're, you're you're present in the moment. You're with someone you want to be with. Yeah, you're, you are you know looking at the possibility of like look at all these people who are taking for granted their ability to be ambulatory, to to poo and pee whenever they want, to you know <laughs> hold their children, to run, to jump, to climb stairs, to take groceries out the back of a car. Uh, you know, it gives you something to look at, gives you something to aim for. You know, there's so many things. It's a really valuable moment. Yeah. If you're, certainly if you're surrounded by 85-year-old dementia patients who don't know who you are all exactly. day. Exactly, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it did. It meant the world to both of us to sort of be able to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, we dared to dream, Jim and I. We, we made plans, you know, four kids, just like my family, be three boys and a girl. Not you have any control over that or anything like that. You know, house in Gold Coast where he's from originally pet turtles, dogs, all that kind of stuff. So just the stuff that normal 24, 25-year-olds do. But um, for us, it was just a little bit different because we had the other circumstances that we were both facing. So really incredible and beautiful time of both of our lives, I think. So, um, yeah, just a, a nice time to, to be alive and to be able to reflect on what we were both sort of going through as well was really, really special. So, And your family saw that, oh, wow, you know, you guys have found each other and this yeah. is great. And yeah, so um, everyone's really surprised supportive of it obviously so um and he was just a, a really likable guy so everyone sort of loved to be around him his energy was in, incredible um and just someone that you'd really you, you couldn't help but smile like you sort of high five everyone and um bring a smile to everyone's sort of life so um for me I actually felt like the luckiest person alive you know I've broken my back all these things have happened but for me it was well, look at my life now, though. Look at this position has put me in to now find love. And love for me was grander than any cricket ball, hitting any cricket ball around the country could do. So um, just a phenomenal time in my life, but um, didn't didn't turn out the way that I wanted to, unfortunately. So um, a bit more adversity was to, to come. So I got to – I'd been released, obviously, as a full-time patient and then – Jim had well, a night to go, basically. He had, it was his last night of rehab. He was due to be released from full-time care the next day and um, he, unfortunately and very tragically passed away that, that night. So suicide um, and it crushed me beyond belief, I suppose, um, or I know. So oh, all sorts of stuff happened. didn't know who I was, uh, where I was going, what I was doing, um, and any time that I ever thought that I'd had it easy in the past was just redundant. So I just I didn't know what my life was about anymore and it absolutely crushed me to the core where I just I didn't know what to do in, in, in any sense. So, How old was he, Kath? 25, when he passed away, yep. And 
I mean, there's plenty of every, everyone. It's horrible to think about, but yeah. eight people in Australia today will will suffer the same fate. All right, so everyone listening knows someone yeah, that, that it's happened to. Did 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 you know anything was coming? Did you see anything? Like you're getting released from rehab the next day? Did you have any clue? None whatsoever. So. Um, a lot of people sort of ask that all the time. You know, it's a really common question to, I think we're called survivors of suicide when you lose someone really close yeah, to you your suicide. Yeah, you absolutely are. Yeah. You absolutely are. So, yeah, so, um, you know, you go to all these forums and people obviously, my life's quite public now, so people obviously ask that question and I think it's a really respectful question. Um, the answer is no. He was just this larger-than-life guy, um, which I suppose happens a lot as well, especially in men. You sort of hear, you know, no, he was never going to be the one that suicided and that was certainly the case with Jim. So I was really close with his mum as well um, and she was obviously crushed as well. Um, whole community was crushed, the rehab community, his friends, my friends, everyone was just an absolute wreck in that situation. So none of us, not one of us ever saw any of it coming. Well, it just, it just really goes to show that you can never, you can never assume that everything's tip top. Never. No. no. It, and that's just so important to have conversations when you actually, even if someone's having a great, are you okay? No, but are you okay? Are you actually okay? And you've yeah. really got to check in with someone. And it's so, yeah. so important to have those conversations. Um, I'm just so sorry that that happened to you. Thank you. It's a, a, yeah, it's really, yeah, that's really tough. Um, I can't imagine what it was like for you then. I mean, you talk about like the adversity you've already described to me. It's like that's enough for a lifetime, all right, just the stuff going with your back and then, by the way, you're going to lose your leg and then and then this. I mean, what did you do? How did you get through those days? Uh, the answer is for the first 10 months I didn't actually, yeah. 10 I, months. 10 months it took. So um, it's really heavy stuff. I was actually the one to find his, his body and – suffered immensely with post-traumatic stress symptoms and um, was diagnosed with PTSD as a result of that. And of for, yeah, for me, I knew I had a lot of problems um, to face, but I wasn't actually ever ready to face them because how do you even start to talk about that kind of stuff? So um, I didn't basically. So um, sort of injured throughout that process as well. So had to focus again on rehab and learning how to walk and doing all those sorts of things. Um, and then it wasn't until I had a setback again, actually, with, with my leg. So nothing serious, but um, had to go and get tested back at the rehab centre where we'd met and where he passed away and all those sorts of things. And I basically walked past his room and I just had this emotional and mental breakdown. So just lost it um, to the point where I had you know, four male nurses pinning me down, sedating me, all that kind of stuff. I don't remember any of it. I've seen the CTV footage and it was just not me, um, so throwing myself against the wall. Um, I don't remember anything of it. Um, and then I just remember waking up. So you had four burly dudes yeah. literally holding you holding, down, yeah. in goes the Valium. So it wasn't, wasn't it harm to anyone else, probably more so. And I to wasn't yourself. that harm to myself in a sense where I wanted to hurt myself, but um, I didn't know what I was doing. I was sort of probably in a really bad emotional state where I was just sort of crashing against walls and probably screaming as well. Prior um, to that, had you just been just gritting your teeth and just trying to knuckle through it, just yeah. trying to white knuckle it? Uh, I think everyone obviously knew that I was suffering quite deeply as you would losing someone in that way or in any way. Um, and I think everyone could see my pain and see my struggle and certainly there were offers there to help me but if you're not willing to accept them then you're not really going to either. So I think it had to be on my terms and when I was ready. So in every day there was a check-in, Kathy, okay, can we do this for you, whatever it may have been. 
Uh, and for me, it was like, yeah, I've got this. Like, I've, I'll just go go about life the way I need to at the moment and coast until I can really figure out what I need. Um, so I had all these people around me and it wasn't lack of support by any means. It was more I need to be ready mentally to do something about this and I wasn't until it eventually just It came to find me. you. Yeah. So I was like, holy well, moly. I've got to face it now. Just luck- it's so lucky that that happened when you were somewhere that yeah. they could, you could be taken care of. If that had happened on the street, it wouldn't have been four kind nurses. It would have been cops and that you would have been involuntarily, you know, committed. Yeah. You would have been fucked. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah. And, and definitely, yeah, it's a good way of, no one's ever said that to me, but I'm glad that you've just highlighted that. He's very lucky where I was. So I think it obviously brought about the emotion and what needed to come out because I was in that environment because they all knew you and they all knew what you were going through and they they at least treated you with compassion in that moment rather than you know if it had happened on the street and you would have been seen as a violent danger to others uh, how you would have been treated and what could have happened as a case because of that yeah far out yeah so really intense stuff um and all I remember is after, you know, you used to sort of go out on benders as a kid and get drunk and all that kind of stuff and you'd wake up from a hangover and you'd go, hang on, what happened last night? Well, I've forgotten parts of it and then you remember and you think it's quite funny and all that kind of stuff. I was sort of waking up like that but with a really gloomy feeling. So I didn't remember any of what had happened um, when I had this breakdown. And then all I remember is they'd seen that I'd woken up and, you know, the nurses and doctors were sort of around me and they said, Kath, we just want you to know that this is completely normal. What you've been through is more than anyone can ever imagine and it had to happen at some point and we're really glad it happened here. And all I remember thinking at that point was, you know what, if this is normal, then this isn't a life for me. I don't want to be normal. And I think that was probably for me taken a bit out of context. Like They were just saying you had to break before you could get better. And in my head I was like, I don't want to feel like this. I don't want to feel this horrible. Um, I don't even know what happened yesterday. This can't be normal and it can't be a life for me. Um, So I literally, um, when I could, got out of rehab and got in a taxi and went straight to to the airport and I flew to the Gold Coast where Jim was originally from. So he'd moved to Sydney three years prior to us meeting and him getting injured um, and his mum still lived there. And I just really wanted to reconnect with her. So I went and did that for three weeks. You went and stayed with her? Yeah, and it was literally just to, I think to... Both, both for our souls to try and meet again and to reconnect because I'd sort of blocked her out a little bit as well and she was really, she's like a second mum to me, so really close. and Trying to find some healing and connecting with each other. Definitely. I mean, um, we spoke about before, you know, having how much a, a parent's love would be for their child and I c- can't imagine um, what she was going through at that point. You know, obviously I was struggling but um, I think it would, yeah, I just felt for her as well and I needed to make sure that she was okay even though I was struggling myself. I think that's what I needed to find comfort in, that we could maybe support each other through something. So flew there and went there for three weeks, worried the hell out of my family and friends. And so I didn't know where you were? No, I ended up telling them. So this is what I'm saying. I wasn't in a very good place but I ended up telling them but then I said, please don't fly here, I need to do this. So um, they did. They respected my space and then I flew home three weeks later and to all of their credit, you know, they all rocked up to the airport, open arms, back into the, you know, the amount of chaos and disruption I would have caused to all of their life uh, in worriness or in concerned, in, in whatever concerned nature they had for me would have been enormous and they just accepted me back and um, and the healing for me, the healing process I suppose at that point had started for me so it was like, okay, it's time to start not moving on but living again in a sense. So I spent 10 months of God knows what I was even doing. I don't really remember much about that period of my life. Grief, extraordinary grief. Because yeah. it would, you know, if you if you'd been if you'd knuckled through the you're never going to walk again and never processed that, yeah, as well as you're going to lose your leg, 
and never kind of and just kind of like, oh, yeah, I hear you saying that, but I don't. It's not sticking, and I don't, I'm not going to deal with the gravity of that. Yeah, like th- that plus the leg, plus what happened with Jim. It yeah, that ten months would have been. Yeah, hard, man. I'm glad you made it through. Thanks. I don't actually remember much about it. If, if well, of I'm course honest. not. Your cortisol yeah. is flying through your yeah. body. Your hippocampus isn't working. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I know all about the shit. You yeah, know, I know yeah, all about. Yeah, yeah. How come I can't remember that entire year of my life? Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? It's well, it's on. our bodies trying to protect us. Yeah, that's the way I try to look at it. Yeah, you know, it's the. Of course, I can't remember it. This incredible traumatic experience that I went through. It's my body trying to protect me. Yeah. All right, and and you know, I look at my ancestors, and the ones that survived were the ones that never ruminated about the horrible thing that happened. Yeah, because I can't remember it. Is your body just going? Nah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's how I like to try and think of it, rather than yeah. something's missing in my life. <laughs> No, it's not like that at all. It doesn't bother me. I think I'd probably rather forget it, if I'm yeah. honest, because I don't even know what I got up to. But yeah. um, What was life yeah. like when you got back? It was good. Like, I What mean, was the past? Did you go, it, all right, now I know where I've got to go? No, it was really relieving for me. It was like a blank canvas. So because everyone had just seen what I'd gone through and they knew that I'd, you know, I suppose there's still that stigma around she had a mental breakdown. So they were sort of like we're not putting any pressure on you to do anything anymore. So just because you were an athlete doesn't mean you have to be one. You know, you can get your job when you want to get your job, but take it take it easy. And it was really refreshing because prior to that it had been you need to be here at this time doing that and life was just one thing after another. So really refreshing and I I didn't know what I wanted to do or who I wanted to be anymore. So um, but, but I actually really enjoyed that process of figuring it out. Um, and then anyway, I ended up doing all this charity work. So um, when I was facing amputation, I met this woman called Mel who was a double leg amputee. So she'd been stuck. She got to rushing for a train and got stuck between the train and the platform, legs immediately severed. Um, so she started this foundation, heavy stuff, um, called Limbs for Life and they support newly um, newly found amputees and those suffering limb loss. And, and did, they, did they go, okay, you're facing amputation, you better go talk to this person just to get your head around it? Yeah. Okay. Um, so she sort of said, you know, this, you have to ramp up your house this is what you put in the shower, this is what you're going to face. So I just found that incredible. So I said, I met her for a coffee and I said to her, how can I repay some of your kindness? Like you were amazing to me and you're a really good mentor and all those sorts of things. And she said, oh, mate, you don't have to. And I said, okay, well, I'd like to. And anyway, we went around in circles and I said, can I ask a personal question? She said, sure. So what is it that you miss most about having two legs, like normal legs? She's got the prosthetics and she can walk, but, you know, not normal legs. And she said, um, <laughs> you're going to laugh at me. I said, no, nah, shoot. And she said, I miss being able to do burpees. I was like, pardon? Like, they are disgusting. Like, who likes burpees? And I was like, well, I suppose there's something in that, isn't there? Because when you can't do something, you really want to be able to do it and all that kind of stuff. I said, well, why don't we make a thing of it? I can do burpees. I'd recovered physically well enough at that point. I'll put this thing, you know, GoFundMe page out there and for every dollar pledged towards Lymph Life, I'll complete one burpee. And I thought, you know, I'll raise about $100. So anyway, she goes, yeah, you're a lunatic, but do it. Cool, I'd love that. That'd be really awesome. So anyway, I um, put this story out there on the GoFundMe, went live on the internet um, and three hours later I checked the page and there's $3,000 in it. I was like, holy shit. Um, Had you given yourself a time limit? No. So I hadn't even thought about the logistics at this point because I was like 100 bucks, I can do 100 burpees, like that'll be cool, I'll get them done, all this kind of stuff. And anyway, a couple of days later my friend rings me, a best friend, she goes, oh, guess what? And I go, what? She goes, have you checked your page? I go, no, I don't want to. And she said, look, just so you know, the world record for the most amount of burpees in a day is 10,000. And I went, 
why do you even know that? She goes, well, I Googled it because you're over $10,000 in your account. And I went, oh, my God, like that. I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I thought, you know what? I'm stubborn. I'm pig-headed. I can, I'll do it. Like if it takes me a week, I'll do it. I don't care. But um, anyway, hit the news, gets to the end of the week, the night before we're due to do this challenge, and it's at 14,650 burpees. And I was like, holy God. And so I put this post out, so right, I'm capping it at this. Tomorrow I'm going to attempt to do 14,650 burpees. Um um, anyway, something magical happened that night. I went to, to bed to sleep and Michael Clark, the ex-Australian cricket captain, tweeted the link, went viral in India. I wake up, there's $300,000 in the account. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, holy shit. And I was like, well, there's no way that one person can do that amount of burpees. So I went, all right, I've committed myself to 14650 I'll do that. And I said, went onto Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and I said, guys, I'm going to Mortdale Fire Station tomorrow. I've got a com- I'm committed to 14,000. I go, but I need help with 300,000 burpees. Is there anyone that can help me? So it goes on the TV news, all that kind of stuff. And all these people just rock up to the fire station and start doing burpees for me. And we got it done, and it was phenomenal. I broke a world record with my 14,000 and um, just this incredible community atmosphere and it was just a show for me of what can happen when um, when you ask for help, the world can show up and in, in enormous amounts of ways and um, easily one of the best days of my life, not for the fact that we broke a world record or did that amount of burpees or raised that amount of cash, it was more the smile on Mel's face that I saw at the end of that and I thought, wow, this is really, really special. Um, so life had turned full circle at this point. I'm loving everything, got a, got a full-time job within cricket, the cricket system as an operations manager and all this kind of stuff was going really well. And then one day I'm at a petrol station and I saw this lady who just looked down on her luck and, you know, just really looked sad looking. And I thought, you know what, my life's really good. It's turned full circle. Why don't I show her some kindness? And I said, I walked up to her, I approached her really tentatively and I said, g'day, I'm Kath. And she said, oh, hi, Merrin. I said, can I buy you petrol today? And she said, what on earth for? And I said, I don't know. I just feel like it would make your day. And she said, it really would. And then she broke down into tears at the bowels and she's like, I'm going through all this stuff. And I said, look, I've been through a bit too and this is my way of sort of paying it forward. I've come through it and I shared that. And we both ended up in tears and hugging at the bowels and all this kind of stuff. And she said, do you mind if I take a photo of you, like selfie sort of thing? I said, of course. So she did and she put it on her Facebook and that went viral on the internet again and then again on the TV that night and someone noticed or recognised my face and they went, there's more in this story. That girl's been through a bit. So then they started asking all these questions and they're like, why are you doing this? I said, I've been through a bit and I just feel like I could help her and that's as simple as it was. There's nothing more to it and it wasn't for fame or notoriety or to big note myself or anything like that. It was just simply I saw someone in need and I wanted to, I could help so I did help. Um, and then anyway, people just started writing to me and tell, saying how inspirational it was and all this kind of stuff. So I started a movement which started as me, just a way of paying it forward to all the people that had, had expressed kindness. So strangers who pressed the lift button for me when I was in a wheelchair. And it was just a way of me doing little acts of kindness that didn't necessarily involve monetary or money at all. So it didn't involve me buying things. It was just having a conversation or whatever it may have been. And it started to gain... But you can't, if you're in a wheelchair and you can't reach a lift button... Someone pushing the button for you yeah. will change your day. 
100% it will. Yeah, and it did. <laughs> it so takes them like, two seconds. Two seconds and it's nothing. And this, the guy that did it for me, I'd, I'd love, I, I hope he, he's listening to this or li- sees something about the kindness factory because he's someone that just literally walked past, didn't make a big deal about it, looked at me in the wheelchair and just went, oh, I got this, bang, and then kept walking. So I wasn't even getting in the lift. And that kind of stuff you notice, when, well, for me it did, and that's what made the world of difference when I was going through all that kind of stuff. So I was just sort of like, my life's been saved and changed by kindness here. So it's my duty. I sort of felt it was my on me to sort of pay it forward a little bit. So that's what I started doing and people started following and I created the kindness factory on that premise. So I was just paying it forward in any way that I could. Um, and anyway, it was going really, really well. Got all these, you know, leadership opportunities within the Australian government and some grants and all that kind of stuff to get us bigger. Um, and I'm going really, really well. Life couldn't have been better. Um, and anyway, physically after the burpee challenge, I was going really fit and all that kind of stuff. And my, my surgeon said to me, Kath, um, your recovery and rehab was based in a pool on a bike and on a bike. If you're out in a run, you can do triathlons. And I said, yeah, let's do that. So I said, I signed up for a test start, like, you know, really small distance. Loved it. The competitor in me come back out and I'm like, I've got to do more of this. So then went and did a half Ironman. Really cool. First person with prosthetic discs to be able to do so. So a really, really cool moment, like going really well. So all right, I'm starting to get serious here. I'll do a full Ironman and then I'm going to give up this stream of triathlons because it's way too time. So, so just for people who, who just let's get the distances down because a yeah. lot of people might not understand okay, the yeah, distances we're talking about. So there's the tester, there's the half and there's the full. So what did you build up to? What is the full Ironman distance? The full Ironman is it's a 4K swim, a 180-kilometre bike ride and a 42K run. So, so, uh, so, so 4K swim is what, uh, eight 800 laps? Yeah, lots of laps. 800 yeah. laps? Yep. Um, 180k on a bike. 180 kilometers on a bike, which is if you're averaging, I don't know, like 30, 40 kilometers an hour, it's like a four-hour, five-hour bike ride. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and then yep. a marathon. And then a marathon on top of in that. one day. In one day, yeah. So, yeah. And so, you had been sucked in, never going to walk again. By the way, we'll have your leg two. Yep. And here you are. Here we That's are. That's amazing. Going to do it. So I did the half, so half that distance that we just chatted about, and then signed up for the full. So it's going to be due to be completed May 2016. A lot of training. Lots of training, and that's why I said I'll only do one because it's taking over my life. It takes hours of your day. Long, long amount of time. So, um, but loved it. Um, and anyway, I got to the January 2016, and I was training with two of my best friends on a bike ride. Um, just like literally went from Alexandria. We're going to go to Manly for breakfast, do some more K's in our legs, come back. That's so that's from in, just so for people who aren't from Sydney. So that's like an inner city part yep. uh, of the city, not far from a place called Newtown, across the harbour, yep. uh, across the harbour bridge, past the Opera House. You honestly, when you ride across that bridge, you're like, I'm the best in Stunning. the world. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> and then to, to to Manly, which is a the the most southerly beach of the northern peninsula. Um, beautiful ride, lots of hills coming in and out of it. Yep. A uh, bit of a challenge, uh, that ride, so what, what is it, probably about 40K, 50K yeah, on a day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's just, you know. But nothing. a coffee half at half time. We're going there for brekkie. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's, that's the key. You go there, 100%. you've earned the breakfast. Yeah. Uh, yes, I will have the waffles, thank you. <laughs> and then you turn around and go back. It's the best. That's why I love riding bikes because you get to eat. <laughs> you do? Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm on this training bike ride to Manly, uh, two best friends, get over the Harbour Bridge. As you said, life's great, stunning. You think you're on top of the world. Um, and just get past the bridge and I'm immersing right. So I'm in all these three lanes and there's a right-hand turn lane and I've, I've like aggressed across, feel this thump on my body and then everything just goes black. So I get hit by a drunk driver from behind, 
broke my back again, like four places, uh, dislocated my neck, broke my wrist and shattered my hip um, and then wake up to the news got two days later, I think it was, to, Kath, you're paralysed and you're never going to walk again. And you're like, sorry to burst your bubble, not the first time I've heard that. <laughs> And I just went, you're kidding. Um, Holy shit. So I got all these head injuries and uh, still scars all over my arms from it. So this guy had sort of clipped me and then I basically... Well, just in North Sydney there, just like... Yeah, just North Sydney. So Right, you know, like where Greenwood the Greenwood is? Yeah, Pardon? you know Green Square? The yeah, yeah right where the Greenwood Tavern is. Directly across. Oh, turning up onto that street right there, yeah. getting from the bike lane yeah. over to get up there East Street. Yeah. Oh, Miller Street. Oh, yep. Holy Miller. shit, at that intersection. Yeah, so busy. What time of day? 8.30 in the morning, so still plenty He was of out from the night before? Um, there was an elderly gentleman who must have just had a couple of shots in the morning or Jesus. not really sure what was going on for him. Um, That's terrifying. Yeah, so pretty bad one. I don't re- again, I don't remember much of it. So it went from, it was bull, it was a four-wheel drive going at 70. So Good Lord. Yeah, lucky to be alive. So it went bull bar onto bonnet, got onto the windscreen. He's seen me only then, oh. slams the brakes on. And then I just launch off uh, onto the road. And I think that's – so the, the hip was broken from the impact of the car and the, bra- the back and the rest of them were probably the – I literally – my best friends were a bit traumatised. And I The second said, impact when he hit the brakes then you – because you're now going fine. 70 kilometres an hour yeah. when he hits and then you kind of have this massive acceleration and then yeah. deceleration. Yeah. Oh, goodness me. So they said it was like, you know, you bounced on the road. I was like, oh, oh Jesus. Like it's really hard to sort of hear and – Sort of feel like I was not the lucky one in that situation, but it would have been really hard for me to watch one of my best friends go through that. So I do feel a little bit lucky that it wasn't them and probably rather take the load than see them go through that. So, um, yeah, crushed again or not crushed, but um, certainly knocked down again um, in a in a big way. So um, six weeks in hospital and then the rehab process started again. Um, not the same rehab, please. No, nah, they, they, they obviously took the emotional concerns into to account yeah. and, and sent, sent me elsewhere. So, um, yeah, I had to learn how to walk again um, against everyone telling me that I wouldn't. Um, this time it was actually a much quicker process because I'd done it before and I probably had those neuro pathways and everything was built in me. Um, and the kindness that I'd sort of been giving out sort of come back to me as well. So everyone knew that I'd been through a bit and, um, you know, people started sending really supportive messages and you'll be okay and all that kind of stuff. And as much as that's really helpful, there were certainly days where you go, oh, but really? Like again? And, um, yeah, but got there um, really a lot quicker than, you know, most people Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> when you are in the darkness moment, all right, so, and you mentioned it happened before and, and it most definitely would have happened you know, it happened before when you were in rehab and it happened again in this time when it was uh, – and it seems emotionally very different when it was to do with you personally, obviously, when yeah. you know, not the adversity when we're talking about Jim, but when it was you personally, how did you fight off the, oh, the pity party? How did you fight off the poor me? What did you do if you caught yourself doing that? It, it, it honestly is kindness. So – Everyone has pity parties. So, yeah, you're definitely going to have those moments when you're going through something as enormous as the things that I've gone through, I suppose. Uh, And you certainly have those moments and there were plenty of them for me as well. But um, I think when you can realise that the the power or the the enormity of other people not wanting to give up on you is definitely a bigger thing than your pity party, that's when you can go, I've got this and I'm okay. And if I'm not doing this for myself and I'm doing it for those guys. And for me, that really helped. Like I'm a really firm believer that you could do anything that you wanted to 
in the world, that, you know, it could be academic, physical, spiritual, whatever it is, if you have a goal that you could, you can do it if you put your mind to it. And if you've got people on that bus with you that are willing to support you and they're not willing to give up on you, I think there's just some enormous power in that. Um, and I certainly, again, noticed all these people around me. So if I was having a, a bad day, then they'd sort of squash that by showing me that they were having a good day and that they had my back. So it was just noticing those small things. And once you realise that that's what saved you the first time, for me anyway, that's what saved me the first time, we'll use that again in the sense that, you know, I'm, you know, people sort of look at my life and they go, this is phenomenal, you're amazing, all this kind of stuff. And I just go, well, hang on, like it, I wouldn't be half the person I am without all these other people around me. So for me it was noticing, again, kindness in people. Um, and it saved me, again, in a really big way. So... Um, they helped me more than they'll ever know and I've tried to, I feel like you can never express that enough to the people that you love, that how much you love them and how grateful you are. So you'd tap it if you were feeling like, oh, fuck, I'm, you know, I haven't, I don't know, I haven't gone to the toilet in a regular way in, in weeks, I, you know, <laughs> I can't stand out by myself, you know, you know, feel like useless but this person is here helping me and holding my hand. And tapping into their intention as a way to pull you out, to suck you out of this sort of sort of self-involved sadness. Is that would that make hundred percent? Right. Yeah, definitely. So the amount of people that sat bedside with me when you know I had grazes all over my hands and arms and face and everything like that, and they were just willing to sit with me in their own vulnerable state, I suppose, and cry with me and show that it was okay to express that emotion and it made it okay for me to do the same thing. Um, and I'll never, I'll, I'll never ever forget the amount of people that did that for me, but what that moment actually meant to me was enormous. And I don't feel like I could ever repay what they've done for me, all these people in my life that have just been there through the whole process um, of my recovery as well. So um, there's too many to thank, but, you know, some of some of the really the closest people in my life. Will, and I, I think for them there was uh, it was a traumatic time for them as well. It's, it's hard to see someone that you care about in that state, you know, whether it be, you know, the emotional state I was in when I lost Jim, um, which was easily the worst time of my life, um, to then even, you know, getting breaking breaking your back and being in that state that you're in after that after being getting hit by a car um you've got to sit with people and you need to be vulnerable enough to do that yourself um and i think that yeah that's probably one of the most incredible things about humans um is that we can we're, we're born to connect and we're born to be kind to each other and that's the most natural way that we can be there's just there's two two things that have happened here those people who are coming to you and sitting by your from what i see it there's two things that happened here. Those people that were coming to you and sitting by your bedside, they were doing the same thing that you did with Jim's mum. They were yeah. they were coming to connect with you. It's like I don't know what else to do but be here. I don't know what to say. Yeah, I, I can't help you. I'm not a doctor, but I can be here. And it's in that being there that there is healing. Yeah, you're making me a little bit emotional. For yeah. both of you, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, I mean, everyone knows someone who's been through something and I think the most powerful or the kindest thing that you can do for those people is not send the chocolates or the flowers mm. and tell them it, it's sitting with their emotions and that doesn't mean that you talk to them. It's just sitting there and being vulnerable with that person and allowing them to be vulnerable back with you. Um, and, yeah, that's easily the most – I just think it's the most powerful thing in the world, human kindness is – there's just so much potential and, and power in it. Um, it saved my life. Like it, it definitely saved my life. Um, 
you know, my emotional state changed um, physically. I've come on since embracing kindness more, um, so doing my own kind things as well as accepting kindness from people. Let's well. talk about that because a lot of people, have, I have a hard time accepting kindness. It is hard. It's hard because, um, I mean, I run a movement called the Kindness Factory and people go, well, you must just be really good at that. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Like it's um, certainly something that you have to learn and, and it's vulnerability again. I think kindness and vulnerability sort of go hand in hand. In hand. It's the most beautiful gift that you can give someone is kindness. But um, you also have to be vulnerable in giving it as well as receiving it as well. So I just think it's probably once you can accept that um, and it's like any muscle in the body, like once you start using it more, then the, the easier it becomes, I suppose, to embrace. But um, yeah, for me, certainly kindness was the way forward in, in, in all of these situations in my life. Um, so yeah, I just sort of then kept going down that path of, of kindness. So really strange and interesting and funny stories is sort of how the movement became bigger to, to as big as what it is now. I'm in court and I'm facing the guy that hit me with his car. So I'd learned how to walk, done all that kind of stuff and not, not great yet, but, um, still going on track and all those sorts of things and get to court and, you know, it was pretty disrespectful. Didn't, didn't even show up the first time then got subpoenaed and then calm and then Never apologised once. And I was like, you, I know you didn't purposely hit me with your car. You didn't go, I'm going to nail this girl and ruin her life. Um, but uh, you did hit me and you're at fault and you shouldn't have done that. Um, and that's okay. But he never once said sorry and he he broke down in tears in court because he lost his licence and all these fines come his way and all those sorts of things. And I, I just put my arm on his shoulder and I said, how are you getting it? I said, are you okay? And he looked at me really aggressively. He said, well, no, I'm not. I'm, this is my livelihood. I need to drive to work and... So I'm really sorry to hear that. And I said, how are you getting home today? He said, I can't even afford a cab. And I said, okay, well, we'll take you. So my, my dad didn't, drove me to court that day and uh, my brothers were there as well. And we're in the car. So he's like, you're not taking me. I said, we'll take you home. And it wasn't about an act of kindness. That wasn't even it. It was more, I need this chapter of my life to close because I'm sick of dealing with it and I just want to move forward. So he sits in the front front seat of the car I'm, I'm sure my brother was behind him trying to strangle the guy for everything he put me through and all the, and we didn't even speak in the car. But got him home and then everyone's like, why did you do that? Like, And they were really a little bit angry at me for doing that. And I was really shocked by that reaction. I said, well, what's it to you? Like, what does it matter? Like, it's taken 20 minutes out of our day. Um, it's not even about an act of kindness. For me, it was about closure. And then that made me ponder and wonder why we treat each other this way. Like, this guy didn't intentionally hit me. He's obviously going through a bit himself. Let's just close the door and, and that's it. But the reaction really shocked me and I thought... I'm sick of people saying that they're kind and all this kind of stuff, but, you know, I sort of feel I've got this sort of an opinion that the world's changed by your example, not by your opinion. So I thought, well, if I'm telling everyone that kindness is the way forward and I'm embracing and I'm sort of preaching in a sense that kindness is, is it, maybe I should live that more. So <laughs> did something really cool. So I basically left home with nothing but the clothes on my back. So had, you know, a hoodie and some jeans and it was middle of winter in Sydney. Um, and I had no cash, credit card, food, water. Um, and the rules were no help from immediate family or friends. So to survive, I had to accept help off strangers. Um, so that's to travel to places. I needed someone to put me up wherever I went and so forth. So um, put this onto social media again and, and TV picked it up, which during the Olympics in 2016, uh, had offers from all around the world to help me. So I just said, you know, I've been through a bit, sort of broke my back once, lost my partner, broke my back again. Um, I have this opinion that kindness is the way forward. I think we should all embrace that. Can anyone help me? 
was the sort of crux of it, probably written a bit differently. And then it just sort of went nuts. So I had offers from the US, UK, all around Australia, everyone wanting to help me and sort of show me or prove to me or give that sort of affinity back to me that what I believed in is true. Uh, so I travelled for two months to every state in Australia, um, 10,000 offers to help me, um, never once needed anything or wanted for anything, come back two kilos heavier because everyone wants to feed you. Um, yeah, crazy. So boats, cars, planes, five-star accommodation, celebrities. Clothes? You, had, you left with the clothes on your back? Yeah, so I'd just wash them. So basically someone, look, everywhere I went, someone was offering me something different, um, be it money, which I always sort of declined. But, yeah, clothes, you name it, they gave it to me. Um, so I, had, I just had a backpack basically with an empty water bottle and a toothbrush. So um, not even a hairbrush did I take. So, um, yeah, it was Phenomenal. Um, sort of took a phone as well just to document everything so that everyone was sort of following it and wanted to hear more about it. So just the most crazy experience of my life. So uh, met all these people, was completely outside of my comfort zone um, and did so many wonderful things. So I was fed by the homeless. I fed the homeless. I stayed in, you know, as I said, boats, tents, five-star accommodation, celebrities, all these sorts of people. Athletes were sort of willing to put their hand up and and prove back to me that what I was believing in is true. Um, so I think it was, again, about human spirit and kindness. So that happened and then something more magical happened. So people started just writing to me going, thanks for sharing your story and thanks for doing what you're doing. Um, today, I, because of you, I mowed my neighbour's lawn as my act of kindness or because of you, you know, little kids, um, I tied my sister's shoelace, um, all these kinds of things. People were, you know, I donated a kidney, I did this, I bought someone a car, I'm like, pardon? Like, what? this is amazing. So I flipped the website, Kindness Factory, and it's much less about me, so nothing to do with me anymore. It's more about people sharing acts of kindness with me on a platform. So, and then I just created a goal that we'd try and achieve a million acts of kindness. So uh, I think I checked it this morning, as of this morning, we're at about 160,000 acts, which is is phenomenal a long way from a million uh but also a long way from from zero so people all around the world just sort of yeah post an act of kindness it goes onto the website the ticker goes up and um yeah we won't stop till we hit the million or beyond i suppose so um and that's where we're at at the moment so it's just people sharing kindness for no other reason than uh they want to and that they're inspired and that they feel good about doing it and and everyone else feels good about doing it too so wow so for let's let's talk about you clearly, as someone who, as you mentioned, and you, you, you admitted that it's difficult for you to accept sometimes. Yeah. If someone's listening to this and go, yeah, I, I like how, what's a, what's a pathway to learning how to be in acceptance of kindness, even dare I say it, Kath, feel worthy of another person's kindness? Um, again, I think it's one of those things that you just got to try more and more of. So as you sort of said, uh, am I worthy of this kindness? Like the other day, someone, knowing who I am, someone picked up a, parking ticket that I'd been given, stole it off my desk where I was sitting and then went and paid it. And I felt really embarrassed by that. I was like, hang on, that's not right. Like um, this person's just doing what I'm telling other people to do. And that's really cool. But it's hard when you're the recipient because you're like, oh, I can afford it. And it's, it's not even about that. It's more about the feeling that it's probably giving the other person. So once you can recognize that the gift in this isn't the thing that you're receiving, it's what you're giving the person who's doing it for you. I think once you can realise that, you can let it go a little bit. Um, but it certainly takes strength and time and effort to sort of come to that conclusion as well. Um, so, yeah, I, the most phenomenal thing about it is that middle-aged men embrace this like 
no one else. So kids are obviously really, you know, popular and, and good and all that kind of stuff. But middle-aged men just crumble at this story and they embrace it like and the, the, the amount of stories that I hear from middle-aged men has been phenomenal. Um, and what it's doing for them is actually proving their own well-being in a sense that, they're, you know, as you sort of said before, like endorphins, all that kind of stuff that happens when you, you know, embrace gratitude or kindness, um, it's actually improving their mental state. So um, I'm hearing all sorts of, you know, acts of kindness as well as the improvement in life as well. So back to the question, how do you do it? Uh, I think it's just like anything. You've got to begin and then you just got to keep going and after you've done one thing, it just becomes easier and easier and easier. But so you're saying as well that, in doing the act of kindness, you are improving your own mental health. It's, it's. I don't want to use the word selfish, but it is a self-serving act. Yeah. You are helping more than just the other person. You're helping yourself. And yeah. in, if you want to feel better, do something for somebody else. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I mean think about any time someone's been kind to you, I suppose, um, and the feeling that it gave you. I mean, sometimes it's embarrassment, but other times it's really endearing and you go, well, thank you. Like, and, but, and then a lot of the time the question is, but why? When you can respond to this for no other reason, then I think it might make your life a bit better and in turn it's certainly going to make mine better. It's really nice and powerful in, in my opinion. So it's, yeah, it's think about that I suppose when you're giving the act of kindness and when you're receiving it think think about that time that that really impacted you and then what that can do for someone else and I think that's when you sort of run to the winner a little bit but it's a really good way to live hey it's like impossible for me to have a, a bad day because if I'm not out there doing something or you know I do a lot of speaking so corporate speaking and all that kind of stuff so if I'm not out there sort of sharing this message and then having other people sort of tell me how amazing it is and all that kind of stuff, then people are going onto the website and it's so amazing at night to read some of the things that people are getting up to. Like, um, So, it's, yeah, it's really impossible for me to have a bad day. So if I am caught in the grind or, you know, something bad happens, I get a parking fine and you're like, oh, shit, like, here we go. And you just look at that and you're like, no, I'm, I'm good now. Like it, it just sort of changes the mindset immediately. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's an incredible way to live and I love it. Like it's just like, yeah, as I said, it changed my life. And if I was over to, able to overcome all that stuff through one simple thing, like one small act of kindness, then I think it could change the lives of people who are not facing as many challenges but then not to, to disregard that but just sort of improve your overall life anyway. So, yeah. Because it's, it's really not something that, you know, certainly in our culture, in our uh, uh, westernised Australian ex-colonial British stiff upper lip culture, doing something for someone else, certainly in America, doing something for someone else is like, well, sorry, buddy, you should have got health insurance. Sorry, you're on the street, sucked in. You know, it's, it's very – but the idea of selflessly doing something for somebody – I think we've got a bit of room for a bit more of it in our culture, you know, that... Yeah, I agree. That, you know, we are more and more polarised as a community politically. Uh, social media has been an extraordinarily powerful tool in your journey, yet it can divide us extraordinarily so, you know, the polarised opinions that, that people are exposed to all day long can really fuck you up as far as looking at the, how the world actually works. You, you know, see as things as black or white. It's like, no, the world is shades of grey, man, not the, not the book. The world, you know, everything's a spectrum. And, you know, just to think, to thought that if you, if, if you can give the remorseless, no thought of contrition, fucked off because he's, 
you know, now lost his license, doesn't give a shit about you, driver, who hit you, broke your back, a ride home from court, <laughs> if you can do that with your family, like knowing I'm going to have to face the judgment of these people till the day I die because of this, if you can do that, maybe just maybe we might be able to be kinder to each other on Twitter, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, I, there's, there's a big bugbear of mine, that whole social media bullying back and forth, like keyboard warrior stuff. Like I just, there's no room for that in my opinion. But I agree, yeah. I think um, interesting that you say like Americans certainly. So I've been travelling back and forth a lot and they've just got this huge appetite for what we're doing at the Kindness Factory. And I sort of feel like as Aussies we're probably more inclined to be kind but we're certainly less inclined to share that because we sort of got that tall poppy syndrome mm. sort of thing. Whereas Americans, they'll go, yeah, I'm, all right, I'll do an act of kindness, but I'm sharing that with the world, man. Like, So there's this really strong appetite over there. Um, and we're hopefully going to launch some stuff over there in, in the coming months, which is going to be really exciting and, um, you know, website redevelopment and all that kind of stuff. So we're sort of tracking really nicely in that sense. But, um, yeah, I sort of feel like Aussies are kind in spirit. Um, not to say that Americans aren't or anything like mm. that, but, um, yeah, culturally I sort of feel like we're, you know, get a mate, all that kind mm. of stuff that Aussies do. And then, uh, but we're less likely to probably promote that we're doing that. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's not about self-promotion or having to even promote it. You know, the website's there for people to do so, but I think the, the, the message here is that just be kind basically. And that, yeah, you, you can make a difference to someone's life with one small thing. So, but, yeah. but no, 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 even if you can't get into it for doing it for someone else's life, just understand how much it will benefit you. Hell yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. I mean, again, it's like, it does sound very selfish, doesn't it? In a sense, but I suppose everyone's a winner in this situation, yeah. isn't it? Like, um, but yeah, like I think the more that you can embrace it, the the better the outcome for for I, everyone. Yeah. I can't agree. I can't agree more. It's like in 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 sobriety, I've, I've learned the you know acts of service is a, is a massive part of yeah. you know keeping sober and and you know just calling. Even when I'm in the like the world's worst kind of downward spiral, to call someone who's I don't know like a week out from their first drink from their last drink or two weeks out. How you doing? How's everything? Are you okay? Yeah, it's tough. And just, you know, within 30 seconds, I'm not thinking about whatever was shitting me. You know, I'm thinking about this person. It's really nice, yeah. Well, you know, that's, yeah. you know, it's a, it's part of it and it's part of it. And, and you know, you, you know, and I've been slack lately, but, it's, <laughs> you know, just having you here is just so reminding me of like yeah, how much, how much that can help, you know, certainly how much that can help. It's, it's, it's so important to to remember that you benefit as well when you are kind to someone. It's like not why should I help that person? It's like why should you? Because you help yourself, man. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Firm believer. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and I th yeah, I mean, lots of people would say that. I think it's the action that follows that actually counts, isn't it? As well. So, um, picking up the phone buying someone a coffee, checking in with someone, um, actually going through with the process is where it all counts. But, yeah, yeah. definitely believe in you, yeah. The action is where it all is. And action, yeah. It just – but, you know, and certainly through re your rehab journey, it's just the, uh, look, uh, I've just got to start it. 
I yeah. don't know if I'm going to – I might not be able to do three times. I might be able to do 15 reps of it, but I've just got to start the first one. Yeah. You just make – start moving in that direction. It's like anything in life, isn't it? You know, someone who's overweight and gets into fitness, go the first session, mm. you're on your way, aren't you? And then it just becomes slowly and progressively easier. Sometimes easier. it's not even the first session. Sometimes just just get to the car. Yep. Just put the clothes on. Get off the lounge, yeah. That's it. Yep. Sometimes you just got to break it down that far. Just all I've got to do is get this far. 100%, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I can't, I can't wait to put an act of kindness on your website. Yeah, do it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Our so, website needs an upgrade, but it's coming really soon. No, no, so, no. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> When's the screenplay of your Around Australia journey coming out? Oh, yeah, I should have documented America sort of are really interested in developing or doing a similar concept. So maybe a bit of a journey over there that happens. Um, and no, that's some, a movie, TV. dude. That's like a... Yeah, it's a pretty it – was, it was life-changing, hey, like in so many – like I met – so what I did is because I had all these offers, I didn't know how to pick where to go and the logistics of getting from A to B and I thought, you know what, I'm going to just leave this to fate. I'll pick the ones that are really special to me and I'll go there and then I'll figure out the rest later. So I did that, locked them all in and, like, you know, someone said to me, if you're doing this, make sure that you've – whatever you do before you go to bed that night, make sure that the next night you've got a place to stay so that you're safe. And I said, okay, I'll go off that premise. So, you know, a family – so three separate people within one family. It's a family of refugees. So the, the dad was part of the Chilean dictatorship, 1986, tortured daily. It's this phenomenal story. He reached out to me and two of his daughters who saw it and they were like, we don't have much to offer but come. And I was like, have you spoken to each other? Because three of them separately have reached and they're like, no. And I'm like, wow, I've got to go to this family. So went to them and literally slept like on a floor. Had They had nothing but their love and hearts to give to me. And I that was it put my life into perspective. I was like, what am, what am I whinging about? Like, hang on, there's some people here that around this world that have been through the most horrific stuff um, and they've just got these stories and everyone just wanted to share their story with me. So, you know, those guys, a guy who'd lost his wife to cancer flew me to Melbourne just for a coffee just because he wanted to say thanks for sharing his story. I'm now going to go get the help that I need. And I'm like, that's amazing. So um, just all sorts of different people along the journey that just had these stories and they were like, well, must, my story must have resonated deeply enough with them to go, we want you to come in and tell us your story in your words and we'll share ours back and we can give you a roof over your head and a shower and you're on your way sort of thing. So, and then like, you know, luxury limousine company said, how are you getting from A to B? I said, I don't know yet. And they're like, well, we'll do it. So they gave me a driver for parts of it and just silly stuff. Like the world is a good place if you choose to see it that way. Like, so, and I sort of have this theory that if you ask for help, that that someone somewhere, the somewhere in the world, the, the world will show up in, in its own little way. But you need to be open-minded enough, I think, to, to see it that way as well. There's some people where, well, I, that's great that you can think that way, but when I've asked for help, the world hasn't shown up. I'm like, well, have you realised that there's some intricate parts that probably did because you're still here today and you, you're going all right. So one way or another it did show up. Um, maybe you didn't see it that way for whatever reason and then they sort of think back and they're like, Oh, hang on. Yeah, it did. Like, because I am still here today and this has happened and my life is okay now. So, yeah, that's just a, a big belief of mine. I think if, you, if you're brave enough and vulnerable enough to put yourself out there and, and ask for help, in some way the world will show up if you choose to see it that way. Yeah. But it is in that choice that we make of how we perceive what's happening around us. We can see it as everything's against me or everything's for me. Yeah, I mean, the perception, your perception is your reality, isn't it? Like, so, um, you know, the, it goes back to that glass half full or empty or you just drink it. 
um, whatever way you want to sort of see it is the way that it will be. So, um, yes, big, big positives in sort of changing your perception as well and noticing the thing. You know, you can talk about mindfulness and meditation and all those sorts of things that, you know, I certainly use as strategies and to help me and to keep me on track. But I sort of feel like, yeah, if you can change that perception or the way, if you can sort of look at a situation, if it's stressing you out or getting you down, you go, well, what part am I playing in this? And you go, well, this is the part I'm playing and that's why I'm seeing it that way. And then you go, well, what do I need to do to change that? And then it literally comes down to one choice. What am I doing about that? How am I changing that so that it does make me happier or it doesn't make me as sad? And then you're on your way, aren't you? So it's a, it, it all comes down to choice really, doesn't it, in, in yourself and what you're doing. So, Because, again, as you mentioned, it's worrying about my own backyard. What can I control? Yep. I can control how I see a situation. It, I, I can't get over it. It's the superpower that we have as humans. We control how we perceive a situation. Hell we yeah. may not believe we do, but we really do. And yeah. we may go, no, 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 all people with that kind of last name or all people with that skin colour, they are bad. Well, why do we think that? We thought that because somewhere along the way we learned that. Oh, I could learn a different way. Oh, yeah, I mean, all people of that and the last name and that skin colour are awesome. Yeah. I can just choose to see it that way. Change it. I mean, look at kids. They'll cuddle anyone that they see because no one's bad or good. And then it's sort of beaten as we grow up. It's sort of, you know, through technology and social media and television and media, it's beaten out of us to think a certain way. If we can all go back to that, you know, that innate childhood ability to just love everyone and everything, I think that the world will be a little bit better. So, yeah, so I think I think the world would be a better place if we worried about our own backyard in a sense that is that bad? Well, it's not bad or good. I'm seeing it whatever way I want to, but I'm certainly not going to judge the situation based on what someone or something else is telling me, I suppose. It's an important message in a sense. But, um, yeah, I, yeah, I certainly feel like any of our outcomes in life and everything that we create is driven by our own self and um, and our internal drivers, I suppose. So, yeah, you've got the ability to change anything or to do anything, but you need to find that within yourself. You have found it again and again <laughs> and again and again in your life and, you know, it must be an incredible feeling to know when you go to sleep at night the effect that you've had on people. Yeah, it's nice um, and that's not why you do it either. But no. um, it is, it's really nice actually. You're just sort of hearing from people and um, the fact that people can draw strength from my story or um, my journey is really nice feeling as well and it sort of makes yeah. you more willing to share it as well, just knowing that it could impact someone else in a really positive way. So I think uh, I think you've been through it a, a lot, Kath, <laughs> yeah. but I really get the feeling that you are just getting started. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> starting to starting to get, yeah, I start to feel that way as well. So it's, There's a lot coming yeah. for you. Thank I'm you. I'm excited that I can be a part of it. Oh, thank, It's been a pleasure to be here. Whatever you need, don't ever hesitate. Oh, thank you. Um, you know where I live. <laughs> <laughs> I, do. I actually do, yeah. And I've yeah. got a caboodle that could help as well. <laughs> yeah, he's beautiful. Yeah, he's, oh, he's probably asleep now because yeah. he's not done those barking. Yeah. Oh, you happy? Very. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. No worries. It's been epic. Oh, that was good. Yeah. All right. I'm going to take your photo. Oh, yeah, cool. Sweet. All right. Yeah, sweet. Thank you. Nah, thank you. That is Kath Koschel. You can find her on Instagram, K-A-T-H-K-O-S-C-H-E-L. She's an extraordinary human being. Uh, you can also go to kindnessfactory.com 
to help her get to a million acts of kindness. I want to thank you so much for being a part of this show, even though you may have heard it before. I'm just grateful that I could bring it to you one more time, um, if you might have missed it. Um, a big thank you to everyone that made this show because we are all on holidays but we're all still pulling the show together so massive thank you Andy Ma, uh, Rachel Barrett my show producer, Mike Mills, the guy that does all of my music you know him as Toe Hider as well and um, my wife Audrey and Georgia who are not minding me um, hogging the bedroom here in the cabin in the woods so I can record this um, while they watch episodes of Hawaii Five-0 on Netflix um, procedural shows I know they do really well on TV I, I can't dig it but that's our show so that's the story for another time anyway thank you so much for listening have a fantastic week until we talk next time sleep well and dream of beautiful things <laughs>